I love water. I like drinking water. I like being near water. Water has energy and waves and movement. But in many cases, water also provides depth and stillness. My older siblings and I would take kayaks out at night in the summer, but not on just any night, only when the lake was completely and utterly still, when the wind stops blowing and no current disturbs the deep surface, it smooths into a mirror. And at night, on a good, clear night, far from town, the glassy surface would reflect the studded heavens vividly. As you paddle out, you slice through stars that are all around you and beneath you. The smooth water, the windless, cloudless sky, the quiet, still summer air, a world completely and utterly at peace. Perhaps you have never kayaked on a smooth lake at night, but I sure hope that you know that feeling. When the grinding wheels of motion, outside and inside alike, suddenly stop, and you can stand barefoot in reality, and perhaps hear a still small voice. Truthfully though, it takes practice to sit still at all. And I should know, I am terrible at this. My knee, it just bounces constantly when we sit down for dinner. A habit that I thought I would be able to break before my 30s, but alas, I have just passed it on to my children who are just as bad. When we are quiet, alone or still, we sit with ourselves. And often, we don't like the company. Stillness, peace can be scary and difficult. Today, I want to focus on the short, beautiful psalm that we read together. The image of a soul at peace, like a weaned child. And so first, we will explore the psalm itself, and second, open up the topic of peace in our souls. Now, this psalm comes from a collection of psalms near the end of the book. Psalms 121 through 134, which share the note, a song of a sense. These psalms are almost certainly used by pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, perhaps in time for major festivals like Passover, when the Jews from all over the ancient world would make their way to the temple carrying sacrifices. Whole families would travel together, women and children, along with livestock and other travelers. And you get a little picture of this in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his parents, and they lose track of him on the way home. Presumably, the crowd was large enough for them to assume Jesus were somewhere nearby, even though they could not see them himself. You see, Jerusalem, it sits up on top of a mountain range with an elevation of around 2,400 feet. Now, that doesn't sound all that tall, but it rises quickly from the plains that spread from the Mediterranean Sea. And on the other side of the range, the mountains plummet down to the Dead Sea, which is over 1,400 feet below sea level. So Jerusalem was up, both physically and spiritually, from everywhere. If you lived near the Dead Sea, you would have to ascend over 3,800 feet on the journey. And these were likely songs that travelers sang together as they walked up to the temple. And in that context, some of the very familiar lines from these psalms 
suddenly take on new clarity. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122. To you I lift up my eyes O you who are enthroned in the heavens, Psalm 1, 23. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, Psalm 1, 25. Now, I was lucky enough to get to go to camp as a kid. I went to YMCA summer camp for about seven years, and I worked there for one summer during college. And every mealtime, clearing tables for several hundred kids, was an enormous endeavor. And so we sang camp songs. And what could have been drudgery became an absolute highlight of camp for everyone. Belting out ridiculous songs, camp counselors outdoing each other with vigor and volume. I loved it. Now, these psalms were most likely the songs of faithful people who were journeying together. It could have been drudgery, but they sang these songs as a way of worship on the way to the temple, giving praise to God in their walk. Themes of humility and Zion and temple worship and, and travel all appear in these psalms. And our psalm today comes from this collection. Psalm 131 provides just three verses, something easy to memorize and repeat. But each verse, it offers us something unique and draws us into stillness. Verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. You can imagine someone walking and looking at their feet as they're going up. Now, this strong language might sound strange to you. It might make you bristle. It sounds slavish and disempowering in English. The vision here is not setting our minds on things above, like Paul puts it in Colossians 3, or looking up to the Lord, as we hear in other Psalms I just read, but rather positioning ourselves in a place of pride. The word translated lifted up in Hebrew is elsewhere in the Old Testament translated haughtiness or proud. Eugene Peterson paraphrased in his great, um, in the, the message, um, this verse like this. God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business. Or fantasized and have grandiose plans. And I think that really gets at the heart of what we're dealing with here. The first verse moves us toward the position of humility, a humility that simply acknowledges who we really are as creatures and who God is as creator. The wicked, so often spoken about in the Psalms and Proverbs, are people who do the opposite, who often put themselves in the place of God, who take a high position of importance in their own minds, and this is the root cause of abuse to others and wickedness. But the second verse, the second verse really forms the heart of the psalm, the center of what's communicated 
in this psalm. After painting a picture of pride and rejecting it, the psalmist offers a contrasting image of both humility and maturity. Psalm 31, 131, verses 2 and 3. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The idea of traveling all the way to Jerusalem by foot seems climbing that road upwards and upwards. That sounds daunting to me already. That's a long journey. But imagine taking that journey with small children. In Rwanda, it's not strange at all to see women far out of town walking along a road with a baby strapped to their back and a hoe on her shoulder and a bag of produce on her head walking up the enormous hills and down the enormous valleys of Rwanda. They took their children everywhere. And I can't help but imagine a Rwandan woman singing this song, a child strapped to her back with katenge, beautiful, bright fabric. In my experience, a nursing child does not just eat to be full, but to be comforted. I remember our kids tugged on Emily's shirt, not just when they were hungry, but because they felt insecure. A nursing child can be impatient. They are not mature enough, strong enough to ask for food with words or secure enough to know that their parents will feed them when they are hungry. It's like seeking a pacifier. A weaned child finds deeper security though. The child knows that a parent will feed them. They know to come to them for comfort and love. They are more at peace in that security. And obviously, it should be noted that, like all analogies, this one breaks down. A nursing child can be a whole lot quieter and more still than a toddler. When we were on those long flights across the Atlantic Ocean with our kids, we found nursing children were much easier to handle than toddlers who wanted to do nothing but run around. Security. Security, though, is the key of what we're talking about when we think of a lean child. It's the key. Security allows for maturity and growth. The healthiest toddlers have a good attachment to their mothers, which is security. And from that place of security, they can grow into maturity. Now, I am by no means a psychologist, but I do a substantial amount of pastoral care and I love people. And in my experience, the places of deepest longings, of deepest fear, of deepest unhealthiness, all of it roots themselves in deep insecurities. The wounded places of our soul that sting when we touch them. Now, the deeper and more painful our insecurities, the more they cause us to have a visible limp in our lives. When you have a sore leg, you compensate by putting weight on the other leg. And even if you think you are being very subtle, the other people around you look at you and it's pretty obvious that you're limping. We do the same thing with places of insecurity in our own souls. For many years, I was deeply insecure about my own intelligence. You see, I, I had a learning disability as a kid. It took me a long time to learn how to read. And I was a late bloomer academically. It wasn't until college that seemed, things just seemed to click. So for many years, I entered conversations feeling like I had to prove that I wasn't dumb. 
which of course just made me look like a pretentious windbag. I'm sure that I'm not quite expelled all of that from myself either. It was my limp. A person with deep insecurities about their appearance will try to compensate and preen themselves. A person feeling insecure about their socioeconomic class may want to flash cash. Persons afraid of not being liked or loved will go out of their way to have people like them. And even pride, at its core, pride is a defense mechanism against a deep-rooted fear of not being enough. And when we live out of these places of insecurity, we are like a baby frantically seeking comfort, frantically seeking a pacifier. And in those areas, we remain immature and deeply unsettled. The waters of our soul are never still. They do not find their quiet. They are like a crying child. Two thoughts about that kind of insecurity in our souls. First, as people, we seldom, we seldom mature evenly. Like a lanky teenager who has not quite filled out, or a puppy that hasn't grown into their paws, things happen out of order for us. A person who has enormous self-awareness in one area of life can be completely blind to themselves in another. A person with spectacularly refined intellect and education can be woefully emotionally stunted. And we should not kid ourselves that excellence in one area precludes us from deep immaturity and need for growth in another. Second, our insecurities often have little or no basis in reality at all. Sometimes the most beautiful people are the most insecure about their appearance. The most gifted minds, uh, the most unsure of their abilities. The most popular people, the most afraid of being unliked. And when we see people overcompensate in an area that they are clearly gifted, we wrongly assume that they just want to rub it in our face. Usually they are unconsciously trying to assure themselves that they are just okay. They are like an unweaned child. The fact that it's irrational makes no difference at all. And I say all of this because if we are to truly quiet our souls, to make them like a weaned child within us, we have to find security in those places of our interior which frantically look for approval and comfort. And we can so often be so ashamed to name them and look at them, especially when, they, when we are successful in so many other areas of our lives. If you want to know where that area of your life is, most of you probably already know, but if you want to test it, think about where, you're, where if someone were to tease you or poke fun at you, you would not be able to laugh the constant noise of our world, the buzzing smartphone notification, the churning commentary of social media makes it so that we do not have to be alone with ourselves. 
We do not have to face these kinds of unsettled waters in our soul. They give us an easy way to avoid our own selves and souls. And of course, in doing so, we do not have enough space to listen and seek the Lord. That does not create wholeness. That does not create stability or stillness or strength or maturity or confidence. It does just the opposite. And we have to be able to look at ourselves, to sit with ourselves, and that can be terrifying. But the psalm, the psalm concludes with a simple call to hope. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And that, friends, that is where we find our source of security. When we talk about salvation by grace through faith, it isn't just about some sort of canceling of debt or um, declaring us not guilty in Jesus. Obviously, those things are true. But it's also an invitation to be creatures, broken and imperfect, who are not God who are welcomed into God's own love without any preconditions. It's okay not to be the smartest or the richest or the prettiest or the most popular. And all of us, all of us know that up here. We know that that's right. But the waters of our hearts are stirred when we get too close to those places of insecurity. And if we put our hope in the Lord, we do not have to be haughty. We can quiet our souls within us on the security of God's unilateral and unconditional love. And moving from that place where you know that intellectually to truly and deeply letting that knowledge abide in your soul is the work of being weaned. It's only when we let that truth abide in our bones that the stillness of God can calm the storms of our soul. And when we find hope in the Lord, when our souls become still, the surface of our souls can reflect the heavens. The stillness of our souls can reflect the image that God restores in us through Christ Jesus. And so, friends, this year I want us to journey up together. As we walk through this interim period before your next rector comes, I want us to sing this psalm together, to be pilgrims on the way together, to wean our souls to stillness and peace. And so this psalm is going to be our theme psalm for the rest of my interim period. And we'll be coming back to these ideas of stillness, of prayer, and peace.